0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Wonderful to be with
1: all of you tonight to welcome Dr. Michael Barber. Um, Andy's with us also from the Institute headquarters over there in Northern Virginia, Uh, to, to welcome us. Let's begin in prayer, and then we'll welcome our speaker tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy church. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all-holy gracious and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Michael Patrick Barber is Associate Professor of Scripture and Theology at the Augustine Institute in Denver, Colorado. He received his Ph.D. in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. He has authored scholarly articles for academic journals. His most recent project is the Apostle Paul, Catholic Perspectives on Pauline Theology, co-authored with Brant Petrie and John Kincaid. In addition to engaging the world of scholarship, Dr. Barber is known for his ability to translate his research into terms accessible for all audiences, and is therefore a regular speaker at the National National Catholic Conferences and Parish Events. Among other things, he has written popular-level books on the Psalms in the Book of Revelation. He writes for the blog, The Sacred Page, one of the top-ranked Biblio blogs. He lives in Colorado with his wife, Kimberly, and their six children. Please welcome, for the first time to the Institute, Dr. Michael Barber.
1: Welcome.
3: It's great to be here. I'm uh, honored to participate in this event, and I'm really looking forward to uh, the presentation tonight as we enter into the Advent season, we're we're thinking about, um, as we are contemplating the scriptures and the liturgy, the expectation that Israel had for the Messiah. And I think a lot of us are familiar with, say, the texts from Isaiah, a child shall be born to us, the um, Emmanuel prophecy, uh, the suffering servant. I think when we reflect on the prophetic hope of Israel, we're drawn to these passages that are really familiar to us, not just from the liturgy, but also from from culture. Think of Handel's Messiah, right? But what I want to do tonight is look at texts that really come out of the second half of Israel's history really examining the return from exile and the way messianic hopes and expectations for the restoration of Israel emerge by examining the historical circumstances, and then we'll move into some of those key texts. And then what I want to do, hopefully we have time, I'd I'd like to look at some texts that maybe you're not familiar with. So this is not a, a presentation for... Scholars, people have examined these texts uh, uh, in academic settings are sure, sort of familiar with these, but many lay Catholics are not maybe familiar with the Psalms of Solomon or certain passages in First Enoch or the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so I want to examine some of these texts as well and see how uh, expectations were sort of coming together and we're really out of fever pitch uh, by the first century. So, with any further ado... Uh, Why don't we begin? What I'd like to do is take a big step back and give us a sort of bird's-eye view of the biblical narrative timeline. To start with that, I'd like to remind us of what Israel looked like. All right? And so backing up again, Big step back. We know in about 1,000, the year 1,000, if you're following the biblical story, uh, we have the reign of David and then, of course, his successor, Solomon. And what's special about David and Solomon is that during their time, they united all 12 tribes of Israel. And and it's not just the 12 tribes, uh, it's also the Gentiles who, during Solomon's reign, begin to come to the capital city, Jerusalem, people like the Queen of Sheba, asking hard questions, but coming to know the truth of the God of Israel. So I, I need to back up just a little bit so you get a little bit of context here. What happens after David and Solomon is uh, the kingdom is divided, and the ten northern tribes go off, and they form their own kingdom. And they basically become known as either the house of Israel or the house of Ephraim. All right, and then you have the Davidic kingdom, which is the southern kingdom. It's in Judea, so it's known as the house of Judah. David is from the line of Judah. The king from the northern kingdom is from the tribe of Ephraim. So the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, or the house of Ephraim and the house of Judah. And what happens is in 722 BC, the Assyrians come and they conquer the northern kingdom. They destroy Samaria and they take the northern tribes at least the elite, uh, the wealthy, especially those in Samaria, off into exile, and they're never heard from again. Now, the southern kingdom, they're going to go off into exile as well. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom, with its capital Jerusalem, is conquered by the Babylonians. The southern kingdom, Judah goes off into exile as well. And so we we talk about the Jews in exile. But I want to be clear, every Jew is an Israelite, but not every Israelite is a Jew. This is important to remember, okay? Because the Israelites, that's all 12 tribes. The southern tribes, they go off, they're from Judah, They come to be known as the Jews. They go off into exile. But the difference between, one of the main differences between the the southern kingdom, the kingdom of David, it's conquered, the Davidic king is defeated and his sons are slain. And it looks like the end of the Davidic line, the Jews are taken off into exile, but they end up coming back. In 586, they're conquered. In 538, the Persians have defeated Babylon, and the king of Persia, King Cyrus, does something remarkable. He decrees that the Jews should go home, and they should rebuild their temple. So the southern kingdom comes back, the northern kingdom never returns. Now, maybe you've heard of the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. Any of you ever heard of the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel? Who are they? Well, they're the American Indians, and they became the Mormons. Don't you know? That's, I'm just kidding. No, that's not right. I'm just making sure you're all paying attention there. All right. So this is actually a major part of Mormon theology, right? Is that the northern tribes are sent off into exile. They end up in America. There's not any archaeological evidence to support this. But they end up in America, and they are ultimately restored. Down the road, or they're part of God's plan, His continuing plan, as it's described in the Book of Mormon. Okay, so Catholics, what do we think happened to the northern tribes? Well, they're scattered to the Gentiles. They're never heard from again. Right now, this is a major defeat. You can imagine ten twelfths of Israel is lost, and so when some return, the idea is you have a righteous remnant some part of Israel returns, right, to the land. Now, to be fair, not all the northern tribes were taken away. And so, you do, not all the members of all the tribes. So, you do have some stragglers who are left behind up in Galilee and in Samaria. And uh, when you read the Gospel of Luke, for example, you read about a woman from the tribe of Asher, one of the northern tribes. And so, it's not like they're all completely gone, right? But on the whole... The the northern kingdom basically is decimated. The southern kingdom, uh, taken off in the exile, but returns. But what's missing? A Davidic king. There's no Davidic king. And this is where things get interesting. So in 538, the Persian king Cyrus decrees that the Jews should return. And in about 520, Zechariah and the prophet Haggai, these two prophets, begin prophesying. Right? So we have these post-exilic prophets, we might also include in here Malachi, these post-exilic prophets who are speaking to the people who have returned. And what is the message? Well, God wants them to rebuild a temple. And so in 516, thereabouts, the Jews complete this building project. A new temple is rebuilt. And we read about it in the book of Ezra. And it, it's, it's kind of sad because when they finish the temple and they dedicate it, the people cry out. And you can't tell if you're there, according to the book of Ezra, if the cry is a cry of rejoicing or a cry of lament. Because half of the people who are older, they shout out when they see the temple in lament. Oh, this is nothing like Solomon's temple. This is pathetic. And the millennials, okay, they're not the millennials, but the younger people, right, who came back, they're all excited. Hey, we got a temple, and they're shouting for joy, right? And the older people are thinking, back in my day, it was so much better than this, right? That's what's going on here, okay? And so there are lots of other things we could say about this. For example, when Solomon dedicates the temple, there is this glory cloud that enters into the temple. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen when they rededicate the temple. They also don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore in the temple. So it it sort of feels a little incomplete, at least in some ways. In 486 B.C., I'm just giving you some broad strokes here. In 486 B.C., there is a king named Xerxes the first. And he's also known by the name Ahasuerus in uh, the book of Esther. He becomes king. Okay. We read about him then. And it's under this figure, this Persian king that uh, the book of Esther, the narrative of Esther unfolds. Esther becomes queen, right? This amazing story of how God raises her up in order to deliver the people, because God is going to, I'm sorry, because there's this bad figure, this evil figure, who wants to wipe out all the Jews, and the Jewish people are saved, and they celebrate this. I don't have time to get into the whole story. Hopefully, you know this book of Esther. But they have a feast established to commemorate this. It is the Feast of Purim, and we read about that in the book of Esther. That's how this kind of fits into the story. You know, as Catholics, it's kind of funny we know a lot of the stories and we know the names, right? We know Abraham, we know Moses, we know various other figures in in salvation history, Solomon, so on and so forth. But because of the way we read the books in the liturgy, we don't maybe always feel like we know the chronological order. We don't really always feel like we we understand how it all fits together. And so I can't really give you all the details of the stories, but what I want to do is kind of give you the way it all fits together. By the way, non-Catholic Christians are often very good at citing chapter and verse when they talk about the Bible. Catholics don't do that very often. And so sometimes when Catholics talk about the Bible, I think they often feel like they're playing an away game. You know, like, oh, the Bible, that belongs to these other Christians over there. You know, they've got that verse, you know, Esther 2.17, Esther becomes queen. You know, oh man, I didn't know that Bible verse. But the reality is, actually, Catholics read a whole lot more of the Bible every year than often many of our Protestant Christian friends do. Because we have the lectionary, which means that the pastor isn't able to just sort of Pick and choose which readings is going to read from every year. So we actually hear a lot more of the Bible read oftentimes in the Catholic churches than you'd expect to find often in, in Protestant churches. And, you know, a friend of mine one time went this the South and said, you know, it's almost like the mailman. The mailman knows the numbers of all the houses. He knows everybody's address. And so sometimes we might feel like, wow, we don't know the numbers. So we don't know the neighborhood that well. But you you may not know your neighbor's address number, but you know your neighbor. So we may not know the numbers, but we know the people. And so as Catholics, I think we oftentimes underplay how well we know the Bible, if at least we're paying attention at Mass. Esther, I think, familiar story. Most of us know the story of Esther. This is how it fits in here. Purim is established to celebrate how the Jewish people were saved from the original attempt at a final solution. Right? when this wicked man, Haman, was going to cause all the Jews to be killed. So, in 458 BC, Ezra leads exiles back to Jerusalem. They've already been sent back by Cyrus, but Ezra brings more people back. And in 444 BC, another man is sent, we have a, bo- a book of the Bible named after him, Nehemiah. He's sent by Artaxerxes, and he begins the process of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And so in the book of Ezra, we read about the rededication of the temple. We read about what's happening there as Ezra tries to bring reforms. Ezra is working hard to establish uh, the people in the land. Nehemiah, he is actually the king's cupbearer. Ezra is a priest. Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. He comes back, and his job is to rebuild this wall of Jerusalem and sort of establish some political security in in a certain sense. And all throughout this period, there's great unrest. In 331 BC, we read about Alexander the Great. He conquers the Persian Empire. In 323 BC, this is, if you know, 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees, Alexander the Great dies. Uh, His general's divide up his kingdom into four kingdoms. Alexander dies, and it's said that he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. He so rapidly conquered the ancient world, right? Well, by the way, he had a tutor. Uh, His tutor was this guy, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, his name was Aristotle, right? So... Had quite the um, expertise there uh, behind him. I mean, Alexander goes, conquers the entire world. His generals, after his death, divide up his kingdom into four kingdoms. And eventually, there's this kind of back and forth, where is Palestine going to fall? D- different generals kind of between the Seleucids. Anyway, they, they some back and forth. But anyway, Palestine comes finally under control of the Seleucids in about 198. In 166, uh, to 160, we have the Maccabean Revolt. And what happens is they rebel against these Greeks who have now come in and conquered them. We'll talk about this more in a, in a minute. From 141, the Hasmonean Dynasty emerges. And uh, about 33 BC or so. Then 31 BC, Rome defeats Egypt. And uh, we have the end of the Greek dynasty that goes all the way back to really Alexander the great and here is where we're going to begin also to see the rise of herod all right in this area all right i'm oversimplifying some things but i want to kind of dive in now into some some texts all right so what are the prophets such as zechariah and haggai saying when the people come back into the land well haggai Issues a condemnation. The Lord speaks to the prophet and basically tells the people, look, the reason you're facing so much unrest, the reason you're facing so many perils is because you haven't been obedient. You've built up your own houses, but you've neglected to continue building the house of the Lord, the temple. And so Haggai 1, we read, My house that lies in ruins, while you busy yourself, each with his own, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. Why have you faced famine? Why have you faced trials? Well, because you're not doing what I asked you to do. You're not focused on the temple. And notice, the temple is really meant to be the heart of Israel's life. Israel is first and foremost, not simply a political nation, but they are the people of God. God is ultimately to be their king. And if they fail to acknowledge his presence, fail to come into his presence in the temple, then nothing else is going to work right in Israel. Another passage we read is from Haggai 2.9, where the prophet announces the word of the Lord, the latter splendor of this house this little dilapidated house that hasn't really been completed. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. So Haggai announces that God's temple is going to be far more glorious than it appears at the moment. Now, By Jesus' day, we know what is going to happen. Herod is going to construct a spectacular temple. And certainly, some people in Herod's day could point to this passage as in some way being fulfilled in Herod's temple. Uh, You see evidence in later Jewish literature, such as the Mishnah, might suggest that the Herodian temple was being built to conform to the portrayal of the final temple, the eschatological temple, that future temple of the messianic age described in the book of Ezekiel. But go back to this period. The people are in the land. They're not doing what the Lord has said. Haggai is going to encourage them. Yes, now this temple may not look like much, but God is going to give you a temple that surpasses this one in glory, right? And this, the, the splendor of this house will be greater than the former. It's going to be even greater than Solomon's temple. Wow. What does that mean? How does Jesus fulfill this? We'll talk about that uh, later on. All right. So another passage I might point to is in Zechariah 8. In Zechariah 8, we read, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion. So God is announcing in Zechariah, I'm going to come back. Remember that glory cloud of the Lord that was there at Mount Sinai, that glory of the Lord that was there in the tabernacle, the mobile temple. That glory cloud of the Lord that was there in Solomon's temple seems to be absent in Zion. And so Zechariah announces, the Lord says, I'm coming. I will return. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain right? And obviously, when we're talking about Mount Zion, the idea is the temple, right? Mount Zion is the place where the temple is. Later on, the prophet goes on to say, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. Even Gentiles are going to come to seek God in Jerusalem and to do what? To entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So even the Gentiles are going to want to come to the house of the Lord. Remarkable promise from the Lord in Zechariah. We also might mention the book of Malachi. Now, Malachi is really hard to date. So I don't want to say too much about it. I really want to stick with Zechariah and Haggai, by the way. They're mentioned by the book of Ezra. But there's no doubt Malachi is written after the time of the exile. And he also announces that God is going to renew the temple worship. The word I will use for temple worship is cult. When you hear me say cult, don't think of like... A, Charlie Manson's group, or the Branch Davidians, or something like that. When I say cult, I mean worship. I mean liturgy. And so there's a hope that God is going to renew, he's going to purify the cult. That also means, of course, a new priesthood, a renewed priesthood. Malachi 3, we read, For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, maybe Handel is coming to mind here, and refine them like gold and silver till they present right offerings to the Lord. What's implied here? That they're not offering right offerings. Right? So they've come back into the land, but even though they've been restored geographically, they haven't been fully restored spiritually. And so God promises, not only will the, there be a restoration of the temple worship, there will also be victory over enemies. God also promises at this time through Zechariah and Haggai that he will guide his people through the hands of two figures. One who's a royal figure, Zerubbabel. He's actually a Davidite. He's a descendant of David. David. And through another figure, a high priest, whose name is Joshua. God is going to bring about a restoration through these two figures. Haggai 2.4. Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Likewise, uh, he goes on to say, "On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel. Says the Lord, I make you like a signet ring. So God's going to put him on his hand. I am going to hold you. I am going to take you by the hand, Zerubbabel. I've chosen you," says the Lord of hosts. Now you can imagine if you were a Jew. And you were living at this time, how exciting this might be. You know that God had promised David a kingdom that would last for 500 years. No. How long is the kingdom of David supposed to last? Forever. Right? But what's going on here? Well, we've got no Davidic king in office, but we've got a Davidite. We've got this figure who actually the persians make a kind of governor so he's actually a ruler i mean he's so close it's so close to happening this figure all right he may be what he might be the messiah now what does messiah mean messiah means anointed one right what makes you anointed the spirit is on you that the the kings were anointed with oil you see this in first samuel 16 for example david is anointed. With oil. Why oil? Same reason Catholics use oil, right? Have you ever wondered why it is you're a 14-year-old kid. You've got enough oil on your face as it is. It's a big preoccupation. Here comes the bishop with more of it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Your Excellency. Really appreciate it, right? Why do we need oil? Well, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Right? So Zerubbabel actually is an anointed one. What does that mean? Messiah, Meshiach, means anointed one. Christos is the Greek for anointed one. Zerubbabel is an anointed one. And God promises to bring about a restoration under Zerubbabel. And a restoration of sorts happens. And so you have a kind of partial fulfillment of Jewish hopes in Zerubbabel. Partial. But partial fulfillment implies what? Partial non-fulfillment, right? If it's partly fulfilled, it also means it's partly not fulfilled. And so Zerubbabel is a figure through whom restoration comes in part, but what's remarkable is Zerubbabel disappears in history. He never ends up taking on all of the responsibilities that you might associate with the Messiah, if you're reading Isaiah 9 or Isaiah 11, it sort of disappears. The restoration doesn't fully take place. The ten tribes remaining is in exile. The Jews have their people restored. There's a temple, but he never really is given the throne and the full sense. They're still under the Persians. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, it's clear they're still in exile. Even though they're in the land, the land now they've returned, yet the exile continues. And exile continues, especially, not just because they're still under foreign domination, but because other tribes are in the nations. And this gets us to one more element of Jewish expectations, and that is the coming of Elijah. Malachi announces that before this great day of the Lord where God will bring judgment on the wicked, before this day when God will refine, like a refiner's fire, the cult, the temple, God will send Elijah. This is what we read. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. All right, so Elijah is going to come to do what? To turn people's hearts back to the Lord. Malachi announces that God is going to send Elijah to do what? To turn the hearts of the people back to their fathers, and ultimately to the Lord, right? And you see this also in the book of Sirach. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about Sirach today. It is a book that's written in the very late Second Temple period. It's not really a prophetic book, uh, but it does have a few passages that point to the hope of the future. And in Sirach 48, it's talking about Elijah, and it talks about him in terms of, You who are ready, at the appointed time, as it is written, to calm the wrath of God, before it breaks out in fury, to turn the heart of the Father to the Son, and what? To restore the tribes of Israel, Jacob. So the hope is that God's going to one day restore all the people. Yeah, the Jews have their land back, but it's incomplete. We need all 12 tribes. Now, how does this hope for the return of Elijah get fulfilled? You probably know the Passover tradition of setting out a place for Elijah. During the meal, right? Maybe you know that. In the New Testament, we read something interesting. We read, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. So right after the revelation of Jesus and his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, we read, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus replied, Elijah does come, and he is to restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. Elijah's already come, and they did not know him, we read. But they did him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood. That he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the new Elijah. He's the new Elijah. He's the one that comes as the messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming back to Zion. How is the Lord coming back to Zion? In the New Testament, the Lord is coming back to Zion. Because Jesus is coming to Zion, and Jesus is the Lord. John the Baptist is the one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. How does the Lord return to Zion? We've seen Zechariah announces the Lord is going to come to Zion. He comes to Zion in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one who comes to Zion. Elijah is the one who prepares his way. Now, I've already mentioned Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is divided up by scholars into two parts. The first part of the book focuses very heavily on specific dates. The second part of Zechariah chapters 9 through 14 is different in tone and doesn't highlight specific dates. Because of this, many critical scholars think that the second part of Isaiah might I mean sorry, the second part of Zechariah might have been written by somebody else. Other people will say, well, no, Zechariah got older. and had a different perspective, All right? So whatever we're going to make of these arguments, I just want to highlight some of these prophecies that are in the second part of the book of uh, Zechariah, which, of course, clearly come from this period. And this is a very important period. By the way, there on the keynote, I have a picture of the prophet Zechariah. Anybody know where that picture is taken from? That is from the Sistine Chapel. And there's a little joke there I just have to tell you about. So Michelangelo was kind of pressed into painting this famous portrait in the Sistine Chapel. He didn't really want to do it. And the, the person who made him do it was actually the Pope, Pope Julius at the time, who Michelangelo didn't have he didn't have great love for this particular pope, all right? And he was pretty corrupt. Now, this part of the picture actually hangs right over the door where the pope would walk in. So this is right above the back door when you walk in. Picture of Zechariah. And, uh, you know, it's the Sistine Chapel ceiling, but it comes down over the side, so it kind of it's over the door. And uh, you'll see a picture there of two cherubs in the back. Now, Zechariah has a prophecy where he announces that in the future age, every Israelite will sit under his fig tree. They'll sit under their fig tree. Now, if you look really closely at the angels, one of the angels is a hand around the other guy, and he's got his finger through his fist here. And it's sort of hard to see it. It's deliberately obscure. But this was sort of like, this was a rude gesture in Michelangelo's day. And it was actually called giving someone the fig. So there is a Zechariah sitting under a fig. And the key thing about Zechariah is the face of Zechariah is Pope Julius. So Pope Julius would walk in and say, wow, look at I'm Zechariah. But he'd have to get up there on a ladder to see what was really going on. Anyway, so there's a bit of a joke there. It's often overlooked. So Zechariah 9-14, through like I say, has a slightly different tone to it than the rest of it. But there are some key passages here. By the way, the second part of the book may reflect the fact that after they sort of rebuilt the temple, as we continue reading in the book of Nehemiah, as I'll explain in a minute, the Judeans really didn't live up to all the hype. They fell back into sinful ways And the restoration wasn't as glorious as it might have been, right? So that might reflect the different tone there in Zechariah, the second half of Zechariah, what scholars call Second Zechariah. But there are a few key passages I have to point out. Zechariah 9 talks about how there will come a future figure who will ride in on the city triumphantly. This might sound familiar to you. Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on an ass, on a coal, the foal of an ass. What does Jesus do in the Gospels? And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find an ass tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord is need of them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on an ass on a colt, the foal of an ass. That's the explicit quotation from Zechariah 9. Right in that same context, Zechariah goes on to describe how the people will be delivered. And for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your captives free from the waterless pit. Because of the blood of the covenant, you'll be set free. Hmm, sounds familiar? Ever heard, hear anyone talk about the importance of the blood of the covenant? Of course, at the Last Supper, we read Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Zechariah passage is likely alluding to Exodus 24, But Zechariah is also very likely in the background. So, Jesus is the one who announces he is going to fulfill this promise. Not only is he the king who rides into the city, it's through his blood that liberation, that God's people will be set free. And what are they especially enslaved to? Not simply foreign powers, but sin. Why were they enslaved? Why were they held captive? Because of sin. Jesus is going to solve the key problem. His blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Zechariah goes on to talk about how there will be this restoration of Jerusalem, but in the midst of describing God's victory over evil and God's salvation of Jerusalem. In Zechariah 12, we have a curious passage. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. This is a sort of mysterious passage in Zechariah. In the New Testament, the Gospel of John applies it to the death of Jesus. Narrating the scene at Calvary, John says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. That's Exodus 12. This is why Jesus' bones weren't broken by the soldiers, because he was the unblemished Passover lamb whose bones could not be broken. But John goes on to say, and another scripture says they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus is the pierced one. So Zechariah is announcing these things. Second Zechariah or whatever you want to say about all that. The book of Zechariah is looking forward to redemption but it includes reference to suffering, to the restoration of God's people through this kind of affliction. But make no mistake about it, the book of Zechariah is clear. In the end, Jerusalem will be purified and the temple will be restored. And all the nations will come. This is Zechariah 14. We read, Then everyone that survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of horses, Holy to the Lord. Everything will be sanctified. Even the common things. We read, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And even the pots in Jerusalem, Judah, shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the flesh of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a trader, a merchant, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. By the way, what does Jesus do? He goes into the temple, right? We read, he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, and those who bought, there will be no traitor in the temple of the Lord. Jesus is coming to inaugurate this messianic age that was announced by Zechariah. He will drive out the traitors. Furthermore, what did it say? All the vessels, the common vessels, will be used for the sacrifices. When does Jesus fulfill that? Well, in a certain way, as one scholar pointed out, Jesus celebrates the Last Supper. And there in the upper room, he takes the usual utensils that they would have used for a meal, and he makes it the vessel of the sacrifice of the New Covenant. And Jesus is going to bring about holiness for all God's people. Now, in the New Testament, the New Jerusalem is described in the book of Revelation as the church. So the restoration of the city isn't simply a restoration of an earthly political reality in the New Testament, but it happens through the ministry of the church. So that is how the New Testament presents the ultimate fulfillment of these things. So it should be no surprise that when we read the book of Nehemiah, The restoration seems to end in a kind of letdown. After we had all these prophecies, after they rebuild the temple, we have a kind of disappointment at the end of Nehemiah. We read that the high priest, Eliashib, lends out rooms in the temple to a non-Israelite. He's making money off of using the temple as like a hotel. And he's allowing pagans to stay in the temple for a fee. City officials fail to provide for the Levites. Remember the Levites, they don't have a portion in the land. So the people are supposed to provide for the priests, support the priests, but the city officials fail to do that. They take in the taxes, it seems, but the taxes go to their own wealth and their own power rather than going to the place where the tax was originally supposed to go, the half-shekel tax. We read about the book of Exodus. And finally, we read about men breaking the Sabbath, of all things, in Nehemiah 13. And this is really the end of the story in the Jewish Bible, in what's known as the Masoretic text. In the Hebrew Bible, the modern Hebrew Bible, it's kind of really where the story goes. Because remember, Catholics, we've got, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, right? Jews today will celebrate Hanukkah, but they don't have the books in their Bible that actually describe how that feast was instituted. That's only in the Catholic Bible. So what do the Jewish authorities do when they put together the Bible? At the end, they put together 1st and 2nd Chronicles. They kind of leave that at the end of the story. At least as, as Scott Hahn demonstrates in his Chronicles commentary, that seems to have a little bit more of a a hopeful note. Not because it doesn't end in exile, it does end in exile, but it it ends with at least a decree that they would return, which is what happens with Ezra and Nehemiah. So at least the Hebrew Bible, as we have it, kind of ends with a hopeful dimension, right? Oh, they're going to come back from exile. But what's going on here? You see a sort of lack of fulfillment. We're waiting for all these promises to be realized, this glorious restoration to take place, and it didn't really happen. And you know what? It actually gets worse. It actually gets worse because the people continue to persist in their sin, and so what happens? Again, judgment comes upon them, and judgment comes upon them in the form of great persecution. And we'll talk about that at the other side of our 10-minute break. Talk about the persecution of the Jews, the death of the Jewish martyrs in First and Second Maccabees. And we'll talk about how all of this provides the people of God with a sort of window, a sort of new understanding of what God is doing with them and what he is going to do with them uh, when the Messiah comes. All right, so what I'd like to talk about now is a major moment in Western civilization that is the development of Hellenization, that is the Im- impact of Greek culture on the world. Just real briefly, what happens is Philip of Macedon in 382-336 brings most of Greece under his control and the conquest of the Greeks, the Hellenes. Under Alexander the Great uh, takes place. Alexander the Great from 356 to 323. This really brings an end to the Persian Empire. Ultimately, in 331, Alexander defeats Darius III. The Persian Empire comes to an end. Alexander, as already mentioned, dies at the age of 33. The emperor is divided between his generals. Somebody asked, who are the Seleucids? Okay, well, he had four generals. Two of them were Ptolemy and Seleucus, and between the two of them, Ptolemy basically controls Egypt, Seleucus controls Babylon, and the two powers kind of vie for Palestine. It's sort of in the middle of these two powers, and uh, as I mentioned, eventually, the Seleucid Antiochus III wins control in about 199 BC, he's succeeded by Seleucus IV, and then Antiochus the fourth comes next. Antiochus the fourth. This is the key figure that we read about, the big baddie, if you will, the, the villain, in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. His dates 175 to 164 BC. He was not just known as Antiochus, he wanted to be known as Epiphanes, which means God manifest. So you can see that you know he didn't have a self-esteem problem, right? So He he was God-manifest, right? But the people made fun of him. He wanted to be called Epiphanes, but quietly, they referred to him rather rudely, as Epimenes, which means out of his mind. So, yeah, you think you're Epiphanes, but we know you're Epimenes. And I've put a picture there of a coin that we've uncovered. You can see his likeness on this ancient coin. He insisted on implementing Greek culture everywhere, including Greek religion, and he wanted to supplant all other religions. First, Maccabees 1.10 refers to him as, quote-unquote, the sinful root. Okay? And what happens in Palestine under him is the Jewish high priesthood is sold off to the highest bidder, regardless of qualifications. Jewish ways are neglected. People fall in line under this program. They forget about the temple instead they go and watch wrestling matches. In fact, the high priest is so corrupt that in so Hellenized, he ends up using the temple revenue to buy sacrifices to offer to Hercules, the Greek god. And so things are bad. There's great neglect going on here. Great abomination happening. And a man stands up. He defends the altar of the Lord, slaying the one who is uh, about to desecrate it. A man named Mattathias. He leads a rebellion that we read about in 1 Maccabees 2. And when he is killed, he is succeeded by his son, Judas. Now, when we hear the name Judas, it doesn't exactly conjure up positive emotions, right? Unless you're thinking of St. Jude or the Beatles song, Hey Jude, which is also really great. Judas Maccabeus is, however, a great hero. And going on to Jesus' day, he is fondly remembered. Why? Well, because he leads the Jewish people to victory over Antiochus, against all odds. He recaptures the temple, recaptures Jerusalem. The law is going to be re-implemented. The temple is to be rededicated. And when they rededicate the temple, that event is Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Jewish feast that commemorates this great victory of Judas Maccabeus. But they have a problem. Judas Maccabeus, like his father and his brothers who end up succeeding him, are priests. And yet, there is no Davidic king. There is no clear political leader, ruler. And there isn't a sense of knowing what God wants them to do with the temple that has been so desecrated, made such an abomination, what do we do with this thing, right? So we read in 1 Maccabees, so they tore down the altar, and they stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple. Well, we can't keep worshiping on this altar, it's been desecrated, but we don't want to just throw away the stones, so what do we do with them? Well, they put them in a convenient place on the temple hill, quote, until there should come a prophet, to tell them what to do with them. Now here in first Maccabees we have the introduction of a motif known as the cessation of prophecy. Yes, God is guiding it seems Maccabeus according uh, to first and second Maccabees it seems that like God is with him and yet there is no clear prophet. There are no figures like Isaiah Not even Zechariah or Haggai. Now we're we're approaching, we're getting closer to the first century A.D. And in this period, there's a sense that prophecy has ceased. God is quiet. That doesn't mean there aren't heroes. If you read 1 Maccabees, you can really see the book is structured around the major figures. There's Mattathias in chapter 2, Judas Maccabeus, In chapters 3 through 9, he eventually dies. And when he dies, there's great distress. And here again, we see this motif I just mentioned. Thus, there was a great distress in Israel, such as had not been since the time that the prophets ceased to appear among them. So you get the sense that they're trying to do the right thing. They are trying to follow the law. They're trying to drive out those who would persecute God's people, but they don't really have a clear sense of direction from the Lord here. You almost get the sense, if I can speak in terms familiar to you maybe from Catholic spiritual theology, that the people of God are going through a kind of dark night of the soul, this kind of silence. Where is God? Why doesn't he speak to us? So Judas dies, and he's succeeded by his brother named Jonathan, and then another brother Simon. And we read, and the Jews and their priests decided that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever, until a trustworthy prophet should arise. Right? So he'll be priest forever. Uh, well, yeah, we're not gonna have a like you know a, a sort of term where you know, you're, you're pre, high priest for three years and then you step down. But we're, we think this is what we're supposed to do until there's a prophet that should come and really give us a clear sense of what should happen next. After Simon, you get the reign of John Hyrcanus, uh, described in chapter 16. This is 1 Maccabees I've been talking about. 2 Maccabees is confusing to Catholics. I remember when I was a kid, I read 2 Maccabees for the first time It was so confusing, because I was expecting 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees to be, you know, like 1st Samuel and 2nd Samuel, or 1st Kings and 2nd Kings, right? 2nd Samuel picks up where 1st Samuel ends. Same thing happens in the Book of Kings, right? 2nd Kings picks up where 1st Kings ends. That's not the way it works in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. 2nd Maccabees covers a sort of different period. You get a little bit more about the period right before Antiochus, when the previous ruler had sent Heliodorus to the temple, for example. And then you get a real focus on the persecution that erupted, and then an emphasis on the role of Judas. It's sort of like uh, you rewind the tape a little bit when you read 2 Maccabees. That can be sort of confusing, because you're not set up to think it's going to work that way if you don't know anything really about biblical narrative. One of the things that we see in Second Maccabees is a profound reflection on the spiritual significance of what Israel is going through, what the Jews are going through, especially in the persecution. For example, we see in 2 Maccabees 6, a reference to the idea of divine pedagogy. God is allowing all these things to happen, it seems, for a reason. 2 Maccabees read, Now I urge those who read this book not to be depressed by such calamities, but to recognize that these punishments were designed not to destroy, but to discipline our people. So all these sufferings, it's not a sign that God has rejected us. It's not a sign that God has abandoned us. No. In fact, not to let the impious alone for long, but to punish them immediately is a sign of great kindness, the author says. For any case of other nations, the Lord waits patiently to punish them until they've reached the full measure of their sins. But he does not deal with us in this way, in order that he may not take vengeance on us afterwards when our sins have reached their height. Therefore, he never withdraws his mercy from us. So God's discipline of his people is a sign of his love for his people. This is sort of counterintuitive, but you realize the truth of it if you're a parent. I don't punish the neighbor's kids. I punish my kids. When my kids are acting out of line, I correct them. I'm not going to let them persist in what they're doing because I'm worried that it'll become a habit and those habits will be hard to break. Right? God is bringing upon his people these calamities for a purpose. What purpose is that? To bring them back to himself. To get them to repent of their sins. This is a sign of God's love for his people. Incredibly. For the author here of 2 Maccabees. Alright, now we're going to get into some interesting passages. Because in 2 Maccabees 7, the martyrs recognize that their suffering in some way has redemptive value. Their suffering is not for nothing. In 2 Maccabees 7, which is a gut-wrenching passage, which describes a mother as seven sons, and she watches them all go to their death as she encourages them to give their lives to the Lord. We read, For we are suffering because of our own sins. And if our living Lord is angry for a little while to rebuke and discipline us, he will again be reconciled with his own servants. I, like my brothers, give up my body and life for the laws of our fathers, appealing to God to show mercy soon to our nation and by afflictions and plagues to make you confess that he alone is God. So by my affliction, you will come to know the truth of the God we worship. My suffering is somehow going to even do more and through me and my brothers to bring an end to the wrath of God Almighty, which has justly fallen on our whole nation. So the suffering is going to, in some way, Help bring about the restoration of Israel. It's going to bring about an end to this period of suffering and a recognition of the truth of Israel's faith. This is a remarkable passage. And we see in it, I would argue, a sort of, to use a term from Catholic systematic theology, development of doctrine. The people of Israel according to the fathers of the church, are undergoing a sort of progressive revelation where God is making known to him in a more complete way what he wills from them. In the Old Testament, going back to David, the hopes are linked to temporal boons. But Augustine points out that what God wants his people to come to understand is that what is most important is not the gift of the land. It's not just freedom from enemies. The truth that God wants to communicate to his people is that there is something more than these earthly goods. And so this is how the fathers of the church understand what's happening in this period. God is preparing his people to understand what will ultimately happen in the death of the Messiah Jesus. Now, the people write a letter. We read about this in 2 Maccabees. Celebrate Hanukkah. Why? Well, just Drop down to verse 18. For we have hope in God that he will soon have mercy upon us and will gather us from everywhere under heaven into his holy place, into the temple. So we've got to keep this feast. Why do we got to keep this feast? Well, we've got to purify ourselves. We've got to turn back to the Lord. Why? So that God can deliver us. All right. What happens next The descendants of Judas Maccabeus end up coming to power. We've already seen Judas Maccabeus' successor, Simon, is made high priest. And then others after him are given this kind of authority. And they eventually become like they have a royal authority. Let me tell you a little bit now about the Hasmonean dynasty. This is the link... Between the book of Maccabees, on the one hand, and Herod on the other. So John Hyrcanus in one thirty-five assumes a royal role. And he goes out and he recruits a native army and recruits mercenaries like other kings. And people actually come to him and they ask him, Will you please set aside the high priesthood? We read about this in Josephus. Uh, we read, they they came to him and they said, since thou desirest to know the truth, if thou wilt be righteous in earnest, lay down the high priesthood, and content thyself with the civil government of the people. It, it's too much power, John Hyrcanus. You've got too much power. But you know what? He didn't listen. And his successor was Aristobulus I. In 104 BC to 103, he goes a step further. He actually declares himself to be king. Now remember, Really, the king should be the son of David. But he makes himself king. He's a priest king, right? He's the high priest, and he's also king. And Josephus, the first century historian, also tells us a little bit about him. He says that he was a lover of the Greeks. So if you're in the history here, you know, wait a minute, lover of Greeks, that may take us backwards, that may take us back to Antiochus IV. Right? He had conferred many benefits on his own country, and Aristobulus went out and wanted to expand the borders of his kingdom. So he went out to expand his power. He made war against Ituria. And he added a great part of it to Judea. And get this, he compelled the Itureans; these would be the Edomites, the descendants of Edom, Jacob's brother, if you remember. He compelled them, if they wanted to stay in their country, to be circumcised. Now, that's not a real happy prospect for a lot of adult men. But he made them become circumcised. He essentially made them become Jews, and he forced them to live according to the Jewish laws. He's succeeded by Alexander Janius, who was succeeded by a queen, Salome, Salome Alexandra, from 76 to 67 B.C., And then we get to Hyrcanus II, 67 to 66 BC. Interesting guy. He's deposed as king and a high priest by his brother, Aristobulus II. So some brother, right? His brother deposes him. And so Hyrcanus, now he's a good manipulator. He's a good politician. What does he go and do? He goes out and gets the backing of the Idyman from Ituria. He goes out and joins him, a guy named Antipater II, and he, with Pompey, the Roman, depose Aristobulus. And Pompey comes in, the guy that Hyrcanus II brought in with the Iterian, uh, with Antipater II. Pompey comes in and he defiles the Holy of Holies. So Hyrcanus gave it all up just so he could be powerful. Pompey reinstates him And after the defeat of Pompey, Julius Caesar then makes Antipater, this Edomite, the administrator. So he gives him some power. And he makes Hyrcanus II, high priest and ethnarch of Judea. In 47 BC, Antipater has a son named Herod. So you have that... Hasmonean dynasty. He gets a Hyrcanus II. His brother deposes him. He's not going to lose power. He brings in Antipater, who brings in Pompey, who defiles the temple. Hyrcanus gets the power back, and he is now set up with dual office with this, the father of Herod. And Herod ends up being made governor of Galilee by the Romans. Antigonus II. The son of Aristobulus II. So remember, Hyrcanus was driven out by Aristobulus. Well, his son gets his comeuppance. He gets his revenge, I should say. And he joins the Parthians. And he gets Hyrcanus uh, uh, II deposed. So there's lots of political maneuvering. And Herod has to flee. And Hyrcanus II, who looked like he had won by teaming up with Pompey and Herod's father, his ears are mutilated by his brother. Why is that a big deal? Because now he can't be high priest. He's deformed. Now, this leads us to Herod. Herod goes to Rome. He wants the power back. And he goes to Rome and he gets himself appointed king of the Jews. How is he going to ingratiate himself back to these people in Judah? He's not even a Jew. Remember, it was his people, the Edomites, that long ago were forcibly circumcised. Remember how John Urcanus went out and he conquered his people? Well, Herod is the descendant. So now all these chickens are coming home to roost. Now, a descendant of those people who are forcibly circumcised is now made by the Romans king of the Jews, but he's got to play his political cards right. So, what does he do? He marries into the Hasmonean family. He marries one of the Hasmonean princesses, Miriamne. She was already married. That doesn't really seem to bother Herod. right? So, even though she was already married, and even though, I'm sorry, Herod was already married, I should say, not Miriamne. Herod was already married. He had a wife named Doris. He has his wife, Doris, and the child that he had banished because all he cares about is power. He wants to marry into this Hasmonean family. He wants to have his own power, and he comes back, he seizes Jerusalem, he beheads Antigonus, and that ends the Hasmonean dynasty and begins the Herodian dynasty. And Herod is ruthless. He kills all the other opponents of his power in the city. All the aristocrats, all those who were linked to the Hasmonean dynasty, he has them all killed. All of those officers are replaced with his own people. Aristobulus the third. He is the, the son of Miriamne, Herod's wife. Herod makes him high priest. He's only 16 years old. He gets fed up with this young whippersnapper, this last of the Hasmonean line. He can't take him anymore, so he has him drowned, this young man. Then he puts his wife on trial for adultery, and he has her executed. He has his mother-in-law and the last of the Hasmonean line, the last of Hyrcanus' descendants, killed off. He goes on and he marries 10 other wives, and he even puts to death his own sons. Herod is ruthless. He's wicked. In fact, he's so bad that he knows that when he dies, nobody's going to mourn his death. They're going to celebrate like never before when he dies. He knows that. So he doesn't like that idea. So you know what he does? As he's getting closer to his death, he gives orders that all the principal men of the city, Josephus tells us, I've got this quote here from Antiquities of the Jews, all the leaders of the city are to be locked up in the Hippodrome at Jericho. And as soon as word comes that he dies, they're all to be slaughtered. Why did he do that? Josephus says, that his grave might not be without the tribute of tears. There's going to be crying at my death one way or the other. I'm going to kill all your family members. And now you know why, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is born, it's a big deal that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is an Israelite. And he is the son of Jacob, not the son of an Edomite. And he is the son of David. This is what we've been waiting for. Now you also know why it was when he was born, what did it say? Herod was troubled. And all Judea with him. (laughs) When Herod is troubled, we don't know what's going to happen. All bets are off. Anything could be unleashed, right? And so Jesus comes as sort of the polar opposite of Herod. Herod is going to do what? Build up that temple. Like I said, he wanted that temple to look glorious. What did the son of David do? He built the temple. Solomon built the temple. Herod wants to convince the people, look, you can accept me as your ruler, maybe even as your Messiah. I'll build your temple, and, you know, that'll make us all good with one another. Even if I'm not even a Jew, I'm not even an Israelite, right? That's what he does. So that gets us up to the New Testament. All right, so this is important because now you see the connection between the Hasmonean dynasty and Herod. Before we leave off, I wanted to do one last thing. I wanted to look at rival hopes, rival hopes among Jews. Now, when we say the Jews, let's be really clear. There are lots of different Jews in Jesus's day, right? It's not like you can just imagine all Jews believed the same thing. No, it wasn't like that. I mean, Jews in the first century were like Christians in America today. Right? Well Christians in America believe which Christians? Which ones are you talking about there? Talking about Catholics? Are you talking about Presbyterians? Are you talking about Baptists? Right? Which group are you talking about? There were in Jesus' day, as I'm sure you know, there were Pharisees and there were Sadducees. Right? They had different beliefs, just those two groups. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the afterlife. The Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife. That's why they're sad, you see. Right? Sad. Sorry, that was bad. You, you'll remember it though, right? That's how they were different. Pharisees have this clear belief in not just the five books of Moses, which the Sadducees accepted, but they also believed in the prophets as, as inspired scripture at some level, as authoritative writings from the Lord. But they also composed other books. And one of the books that we have from the Pharisees is a book called the Psalms of Solomon. Now, it's not in the Bible. This is written at the end of the, you know, the Second Temple Period, probably dates to about the first century. Psalms of Solomon. And in Psalms of Solomon, we have a depiction of the Messiah. We read about this. This is Psalms of Solomon 17. And I'm taking this from the Charlesworth translation. See, Lord, and rise up for them, their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. And he will have Gentile nations serving him under his yoke. Won't that be great? The Messiah is going to come and he's going to subjugate all the Gentiles. He will glorify the Lord in a place prominent above the whole earth. Seems to be a reference to a temple. He will purge Jerusalem and make it holy as it was even from the beginning for nations to come from the ends of the earth to see his glory, to bring as gifts or children who have been driven out. So the nations are going to come and they're going to do what? They're going to bring the exiles back to see the glory of God. He will be a righteous king over them, verse 32, taught by God. There will be no unrighteousness among them in his days. For all shall be holy, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. For he will not rely on a horse and rider and bow, nor will he collect gold and silver for war, nor will he build up hope in a multitude for a day of war. The Lord himself is his king, the hope of the one who has a strong hope in God. He will be compassionate to all the nations who reverently stand before him. He himself will be free from sin in order to rule a great people. He will expose officials and drive out sinners by the strength of his word. So, here we see in Psalms of Solomon a vision for a Davidic king. He's going to come, he's going to restore the city of Jerusalem, he's going to subjugate the nations. Basically, we have a warrior king, right? A political figure who's going to bring victory. Now. How does this maybe inform what we read in the Gospels? Can anybody think of any passage in the Gospels where the disciples seem to express some surprise at Jesus' teaching about his identity as the Messiah and what that will involve? Would it be when Peter says that
2: nothing should happen to him and and Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan? Exactly! Exactly!
3: Right? Peter just announced, you're, gonna, you're the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. And then Jesus says, okay, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, and they're going to hand me over, and I'm going to suffer. And, and Peter says, God forbid! He's like, wait a minute. I wouldn't have thought you were the Messiah if you were going to tell me that was going to happen to you. No, he doesn't say that exactly. But notice that Jesus waits for Peter to recognize him as the Messiah before he lets him in on the whole vision of what it's going to involve. At least that's true in the Gospel of Matthew. So we see here Peter's expectation of a royal political restoration. James and John come to Jesus. Let us sit one at your right and one at your left when you come into your kingdom. Psalms of Solomon point to this kind of expectation. They got it right. In some ways, from a New Testament perspective, they got it right. The Messiah is the son of David. And he's going to bring about a restoration and purification, and he's going to bring the Gentiles and Israel. He's going to be free from sin. But the restoration that he brings about, according to the New Testament, is something more than an earthly political restoration. It's more than just subjugating the Gentile. It's more than just an earthly reality. So with that, let's turn to another expression of future hopes. This is found in 1 Enoch. Now, first, Enoch represents what many people identify as apocalyptic Judaism, right? The hope of a restoration that's going to involve the inbreaking of heaven. In 1 Enoch, we read about a deliverer, a future deliverer, called, in some places, the Son of Man, in some places called the Chosen One, First Enoch is divided up into different parts. I don't have time to get into all the fine details here. This section is taken from a section that's known as the Book of Parables. Some scholars have ad- argued that it's an, a later addition to the book. Anyway, it's sort of complicated. But what we see here is an expectation of a kind of heavenly messianic figure. Not just an earthly political figure. Let's take a look at First Enoch. First Enoch 48. And in that hour, that Son of Man was named in the presence of the Lord of Spirits and his name before the Ancient of Days, the Head of Days. The imagery here is all coming from Daniel, which is, of course, a very important book in this period, but I left it out because I never would have got to all this if I went through Daniel. Even before the sun and the constellations were created, before the stars of heaven were made, his name, the name of the Son of Man, This guy, the Son of Man, was named before the Lord of the Spirits. He will be a staff for the righteous, that they may lean on him and not fall. He will be a light of the nations. That's the servant of Isaiah image there. He will be a hope for those who grieve in their hearts. All who dwell on the earth will fall down and worship before the Son of Man. And they will glorify and bless and sing hymns to the name of the Lord of Spirits. For this reason, the Son of Man was chosen and hidden in his presence before the world was created and forever. And the wisdom of the Lord of the Spirits has revealed him to the holy and the righteous. How might First Enoch be seen as getting it right? Any thoughts on this passage?
2: It predicted
3: the Messiah and predicted him correctly. It predicted the Messiah. It predicted that he existed, it seems here, at least his name exists, even before creation. He's a heavenly figure who is going to be revealed at a future day. At a future time. Now, in First Enoch, the revelation of the Son of Man corresponds with the Son of Man coming and basically taking names and, you know, kicking you-know-what. The Son of Man figure comes, and he defeats all the wicked, and they all fall down, all the dwellers of the earth. That's basically the wicked who are left. They fall down and they worship him. Right? But you don't get the sense that he's going to be human. You don't get the sense that he's going to be vulnerable. You don't get the sense that he's going to come and then there will be a continuing period of history that will play out before the final resurrection of the dead and the eschatological, that's a big fancy word for the period at the end of time, the final victory. So first Enoch, seems to get some things right about the Messiah. Where do they get this? Well, scholars see it drawing on Daniel, drawing on other passages. The authors of First Enoch are reflecting on these biblical traditions and trying to understand what, I think, something that the Pharisees and Psalms of Solomon don't see. That is the heavenly dimension of the messianic mission. And yet, they don't see it fully. The Son of Man is still going to come essentially as a conqueror. Now, there is some evidence in 1 Enoch 47 of suffering, and I can't draw all that out right now. But suffice it to say, the Son of Man will come at a future period, and he will bring this great eschatological victory. One more thing about First Enoch. First Enoch sees not only the identity of a heavenly Messiah, but also the revelation of a heavenly temple. Enoch goes up into heaven. We read, And I, Enoch, saw the cloud, and I kept coming into heaven. And as I shook and trembled, I fell upon my face and saw a vision. And behold, there was an opening before me, a second house, a second temple, which is greater than the former. And everything in the heavenly temple is built with tons of fire. Have you ever heard any vision, have you ever heard any passage in the New Testament that uses that image of tongues of fire? When do we read about tongues of fire? Jane's got it. Pentecost. I can read your lips, right? Pentecost. I think that first Enoch was wildly popular in Jesus' day. It was like the Harry Potter of Jesus' day. It was everywhere. Okay. We find more copies of First Enoch in the Dead Sea Scrolls than we find biblical books. I think when Acts describes tongues of fire coming on the apostles, it's meant to tap into this understanding that many would have had from First Enoch, that there's a heavenly temple made with tongues of fire. But I think the key point that the book of Acts is making here is that the heavenly temple is made present on earth in the church. Already now, we have the heavenly temple as something we can enter into. So first Enoch sees a lot, but that heavenly temple is only going to be something entered into you in the future day. The New Testament seems to suggest Jesus is the son of David, but he's also the son of man the heavenly Messiah who brings in heaven to earth. The kingdom of heaven is proclaimed on earth. So the church can be the temple on earth. Another passage that's sort of interesting is found in Isaiah 19. Now this is obviously earlier than we've been looking at, but in Isaiah 19, it talks about a altar that will be set up in Egypt. Here we read, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Now, wait a minute. How can you have an altar in Egypt? According to the Torah, the only place you're allowed to worship is in Jerusalem at the temple. What seems to happen is that this comes to be linked to future hopes, eschatological hopes. And what happens is, prior to the restoration under Judas Maccabeus, when Hellenization really gets into full swing, there's a righteous priest named Oniad the third. He is expelled. He's sent away, and it seems that there was a tradition that he went down into Egypt. And he said, "Well, pff, nuts to that in Jerusalem." We're going to establish the temple we've been all waiting for, a new temple that is not within the bounds of Israel. And this is, in some way, seemed linked to eschatological elves. Now, here we have a sort of element that's consistent with what is found in the New Testament, that the worship of God is not just going to be linked to the one place in Jerusalem. There's a transcending of the Torah and the New Covenant, And yet, here at Leontopolis, where they build this temple, we see the one place you still have to go to worship. And there isn't a heavenly dimension to this temple, like you see in the New Testament. One last area of text I'd like to look at, that is, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I could say a whole lot about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I love talking about the Dead Sea. I'm not talking about the Dead Sea Squirrels. That's something different. Dead Sea Squirrels, not as exciting. The Dead Sea Scrolls are documents that actually date back to Jesus' day. All right? And here we have the writings of this community, and we see in these writings biblical texts, but we also see these, these sectarian texts that they wrote themselves. For example, we have what's known as the Damascus document that describes how there will arise the Messiah of Aaron and Israel. Now, does this mean that there will be one Messiah? A priestly Messiah from the tribe of Aaron? Does it mean that there will be a Davidic Messiah? Because in other places, the Messiah is very clearly the son of David in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Scholars debate this. But they have an expectation of a coming Messiah, maybe two Messiahs, Maybe they changed their mind over a course of time. They also looked forward to a new covenant. In fact, they believed that by joining together in the wilderness, going out to the Dead Sea area, devoting themselves to purification, they were already somehow the new covenant community. And you know what they called their new covenant community? They called it the Assembly. You see this in 1Q28A. a have put it there on the handout. By the way, all the scrolls, or many of them, have funky titles. So one, there were 11 caves where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found in a place called Qumran. So one means the scroll was found in the first cave. At Qumran, this is the 28th fragment found in that cave. Okay. There we read about The men of renown, those summoned to the assembly. And the Hebrew word, fascinating, that's used for their community is kahal. Now, why is that interesting? Because the new covenant community is called the kahal. The Septuagint often translates that word with another, with a Greek word, ekklesia, the word we translate church. So the Dead Sea community essentially defines itself as the church, A new covenant community, a new covenant church. And one of the key features of their community is celebrating a sacred meal. We read about that in Community Rule, and if you keep reading, you'll find that they look forward to the day the Messiah comes and he celebrates the Messianic banquet that looks a lot like their meal. Their meal is already in anticipation, Sounds familiar? Do you have any Christians that might celebrate? Yeah, of course. In the New Covenant, it seems the Eucharist is associated with the New Covenant. It's seen as a New Covenant meal. And many scholars see parallels here. They also describe their community as a church. Fascinating. This is found in 1Q28. When these things exist in Israel, the community council should be founded on truth to be an everlasting plantation, a holy house for Israel, and the foundation of the Holy of Holies for Aaron. Their community is like a Holy of Holies. We go on, we read, this, the community, is the tested rampart, the precious cornerstone that does not, and then it's blank, whose foundations, there are holes in this document, so it reads funny, whose foundations shake or tremble from their place, there's a hole, It will be the most holy dwelling. There'll be a temple for Aaron with eternal knowledge of the covenant of justice in order to offer a pleasant aroma. They're going to offer sacrifice, a covenant in compliance with the everlasting decrees. And these will be accepted in order to atone for the land. So their righteousness will be atoning. And they are the covenant community. Therefore, that is a temple. Because in their community, they are offering a kind of atoning sacrifice. This parallels very closely what we see in the New Testament. Here you see how ancient Jews, reflecting on the ancient prophecies, were beginning to try to understand what would come in the Messianic Age. And in the New Testament, we see Jews who announced this fulfillment has been realized. Now, there's continuity with the Dead Sea community, discontinuity. And I could say a lot about this, but one of the big issues is the Dead Sea community believes, well, we're going to be a temple until we can rebuild the building that's been corrupted by Herod and these wicked priests that now run it. Eventually, we're going to get back to the real business of the temple and rebuild that construction in Jerusalem. The New Testament helps us realize that the true temple is the body of Christ, which the church enters into. That body of Christ has been taken up into heaven. And so the body of Christ is a heavenly temple. The church is the heavenly Jerusalem. It's already present on earth through the ministry of the church, for example, in the Eucharist. Like the Dead Sea community, we believe that the Messiah would come and establish a messianic banquet. But we believe he established that in the upper room. And our celebration of the Eucharist isn't merely an anticipation of the messianic banquet. No, the Eucharist is, every time we celebrate, is a messianic banquet because the Messiah is present with us. He is really present with us every time we celebrate the new covenant, which he has realized and which will ultimately be seen in its fullness on the last day, when the Son of Man does come to judge the living and the dead, to bring justice to the world, and to save the righteous into that eternal kingdom, that is the heavenly kingdom, where we will live and reign and worship him with all the saints, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so that brings to a close our presentation. Why don't we end with a prayer, and then I'll see if we have uh, a little time for questions here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In him, all of your promises are realized. And yet, as St. Paul tells us, I had not seen, ear had not heard, nor had it even occurred to the mind of man what you had in store for us. Because the restoration that you bring about far surpasses anything that could have been expected. Even as ancient Jews were coming in to a better and deeper understanding of what it was that awaited them, we could not fully appreciate what it was that we would be called into. Communion with the Messiah and a share in his divine sonship so that we could enter into your own life, into your own triune life, be with you and all the saints for all eternity. And we say glory be to the Father and to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Are there any questions, Andy? Do we have a minute or two
2: for questions here? Of course, and thank you so much for the talk, Dr. Barber.
3: The first question was the second Maccabees seven seems to sound a lot like Colossians one twenty four, which is also a passage that points to the idea of redemptive suffering. And the question was, do patristic sources link these two texts together? Not that I know of, actually. Um, that doesn't mean that they didn't but I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of all the fathers and doctors of the church. So my area has really been uh, in scripture and Christian origins. Um, So it might be the case that they did. I have looked. I haven't really seen evidence of that, at least not in the early church. I could be wrong. Not in the apostolic fathers, I don't think. So I hope uh, I'm not wrong, but that's my best answer there. Now, Kathy Flowers said that I was enthusiastic. Well, if this stuff doesn't get you excited, check your pulse. I'm sorry. Uh, Either this stuff is true, and it's the most exciting thing in the world, or really, I don't know what to say. What do you want to do? Watch a football game? Um, Okay, let's see here. Why did the Jews leave the books of Maccabees out of Scripture? Well, that is a great question, and one of the reasons seems to be that it was not written in Hebrew, and God only speaks Hebrew, according to some Jewish thinkers. So that seems to be one of the reasons why. It may have also been uh, for other reasons, but uh, I think that was probably the most significant one. All right, now let's go to the questions, Andy, that you were uh, about to take us to.
2: Uh, yeah, Bob, I'll unmute you here, and that'll allow some questions to come in.
3: Yeah. So I was just curious. Uh, you you mentioned uh, that under the guidance of the royal Zerubbabel that there was a high priest named Joshua. Yeah. I wonder if this has anything to do with a prediction of Jesus again, the same name. Well, of course, it's easy to make the connection. And certainly, I guess you could say there's some kind of fulfillment there. I, just, I, I haven't really thought through the dynamics of that, certainly because uh, I'd also want to link them to Zerubbabel, and I can't find any linguistic link between Jesus' name and Zerubbabel, but maybe my uh, etymology uh, needs to work or something. I don't think so. Anyway, but I think there, there might be some truth to that. Yeah, thank right. you.
2: Mary asks, is there any evidence that Psalms of Solomon or First Enoch were considered by the Jews to be included as part of the Hebrew scripture?
3: Which Jews are you talking about? Right. So the Pharisees may very well have thought Psalms of Solomon should be included in scripture. The Sadducees may not have. The fact that First Enoch is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls leads some to think that the Dead Sea community thought that was authoritative scripture. But this whole idea that, you know, the Jews had a Bible, right, is really anachronistic. Because first off, you're assuming all Jews thought the same way, which they did not, right? And secondly, you're assuming that they had a closed set of this is our book. It's really not until long after Christianity that that process really takes shape. Some people in the past would point to this thing called the Council of Jamnia. But real scholars know that didn't really happen. So it's uh, kind of a modern myth, this whole idea of a council of Jamnia. But why do we say that? Well, because uh, in the Babylonian Talmud, which dates to a much later period, right? uh, Some of the rabbis are still quoting it as scripture. So if there was a council of Jamnia, they didn't get the memo, right? So yeah, there there was still quite a bit of debate going on, I think, within Judaism about which books were scripture.
2: And as sort of a follow-up question there, uh, Phil's asking, should Catholics read First Enoch?
3: Do you know Ezra and Nehemiah? Do you know uh, Wisdom of Solomon? Yes, I think it's important to read these other books. Um, they help us get a broader perspective on the New Testament. And the more serious you are about you know, New Testament study, the more important it becomes, especially if you get into like an academic program. But if you're a Catholic and you're looking for spiritual nourishment and growing in the faith, I would say before you start going outside the canon, uh, make sure you know the books that are actually inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, in Catholic understanding first, and make sure you know them very, very well.
2: Ashton asks, is the church's teaching that the Bible, i.e. inspired scripture, is complete, or can writings or books be added to it in the future?
3: In the the Catholic understanding is that the, the canon is closed. so there will not be more books added.
2: Why don't we end with this? This is Mark's question. He says seven brothers in Maccabees like seven or Covenant from the book of Genesis. any comments that you can add here? Is there connection with the number of brothers? And there's certainly significance to the fact that
3: there are seven brothers in uh, second Maccabees. It certainly seems to point to like the fullness, right of martyrdom and the fullness of, of, of sacrifice. And perhaps in a way you could see it as related to uh, experiencing the covenant curses. If you know a little bit of Hebrew, the word for swearing a covenant oath is Shavah. To swear an oath is literally to seven yourself. When you enter into a covenant though, uh, and you swear an oath, you typically uh, recognize there's a, a maledictory element to that. That is, there's an idea that you're invoking curses on yourself if you fail to keep the covenant. It seems that the seven brothers in 2 Maccabees uh, suffer as part of the covenant curses. So, there may be a, a connection there. And in suffering, they are bearing the covenant curses in some way
2: redemptively. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Robert. Of we, course, We really thank appreciate you. your time. God bless you all. Thanks for sticking around. You guys are troopers, scholars, okay? Two hours straight. And uh, hopefully we can see a lot of you in person. Father Shears here. God bless you, Father. Ashley, can we have a blessing from you?
1: Certainly, I'd be glad to. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to send forth your blessing upon all of the listeners of this program, and especially all those benefactors who are helping the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture to promote and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I ask your blessing upon all who are listening and who are gathered here remotely via this internet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Thank you so much, Father. My pleasure. Take care, everyone. Bye.
0: Bye, Andy. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. Or call us at 5406357155, and may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.